I blew up your body But you blew my mind Welcome to this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm sitting here with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. Today, we're going to be discussing Brian Ferry and Roxy Music. We're uh-huh. going to be talking about Jeff Tweedy and the rise of alternative country. We're going to be talking about the great New York writer, Susan Shapiro. And we're going to be talking about everything that's new in the Rocks Back Pages library this week. Splendid. So we're going to start, aren't we, Mark, with a clip from a 1993 audio interview with Brian Ferry. Absolutely. As far as singers are concerned, the two biggest singers, most successful probably singers of our time have been Sinatra and Elvis. And neither of them ever wrote a song. They were interpretive singers, you know. Yeah. And... Um, it's only since, you know, when, 66 or something, or mid-60s, that it's been obligatory for people to write your own material. Mm-hmm. It just staggers me when people say, oh, why are you doing a covers album? As if it's like a B-movie, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like, uh, although some B- Roger Corman movies can be actually very good. <laughs> but um, but uh, I don't see it in that way. I think it depends how much you put... Uh, how much of yourself you put into it. Whether you write the song... Is a, I like doing both. I just wish I'd done this album ages ago. I think it would have helped me a lot in the last ten years. Because mm. I've been... Each time you do an album, you're trying to write a new repertoire for yourself. And it becomes very hard after a certain age, I think. And after the last tour, I loved it so much. I wanted to get out on the road again. Say, I, said, I must get out within a year. I really enjoy doing this and but I felt obliged somehow to write a new repertoire for myself and it was too big a thing to take on I think. Yeah. and I got stuck because I was trying to make every song a classic and it was like pressure, I pressured out <laughs> well I mean it, it's a very interesting interview uh, in it he he's just released his solo well about to release his uh, covers album Taxi, 1993 covers album Taxi. And he talks, as you heard there, about interpretation because uh, he did a number of um, albums of cover versions. Including, he, 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 including a new one including that's a, just coming out this week. That's right. And and he kind of doesn't like the word cover. He, he, he regards himself as an interpreter, as you heard there. Um, he also talks in the interview about how making this album pulled him out of a sort of pretty black spot as a, as a recording artist. He'd notoriously was been doing this album for years called, Horror, at that point, Horoscope, which wasn't released. It eventually emerged after this interview as Mamuna. Um, and he talks in the interview about the perils of 48-track recording, how if you give yourself too many options, you just get buried in, in the weeds of, of doing it. And how um, he was kind of pulled out of that by Robin Trier's producer on Taxi, who was much more direct, much more simple, back to 24-track, do things fairly fairly. Quickly, I mean, by his stance, fairly quickly. I mean, it still took six months to make. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, he comes over as, I don't know, a bit depressive, really, in, 
What do you think, Barney? Um, I, I do. I wanted to make the point. Somewhere in the interview, he talks about, well, no one ever has an issue with Sinatra or Elvis not writing their own songs. But but that misses the point, Brian, that you actually wrote a lot of really, really good yes. songs. And so one does sometimes suspect that his propensity for doing albums of cover yeah. versions is, in a way... A, a, a sort of an avoidance of his own muse, possibly. Quite, quite possibly. I mean, I think his, his legitimate argument for doing it is that, that he has something to bring these songs, which I think is arguable. I think his cover versions are very variable indeed. I agree. Um, but I, I think for him, in this case, this particular album sort of like got him out of the weeds and, and got him back sort of focusing uh, uh, as, a, as a writer after this so well I mean when you go back to the start of his solo career uh, These Foolish Things album was in a sense a kind of busman's holiday yeah. from Roxy Music yeah, yeah. from the hard work yeah. of writing for Roxy he, he talks about 73 as his sort of Annus Mirabilis is that uh, The Stranded was released in 73 um, he said as a live performer he was enjoying himself so much that you know that was the year he in the interview he, he looks back on very fondly as possibly the most fun he had in any given year as a as an artist and that included doing these foolish things yeah i listened to the interview and um i mean i think i agree with you that there is some, he's a strange fellow yeah. brian for someone who was so playful in the certainly the early years of roxy there's so much humor on the first Roxy album and Feel Pleasure and Stranded. Uh, So much sort of wit and panache and style. Um, And, I mean, I interviewed him once and found him curiously gloomy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I think in this interview, which uh, is a bit before I interview him, he does, he sounds sort of terribly sort of sombre and serious about his work. And... I mean, he talks about, I think the pitfalls really of being Brian Ferry, the creative artist, is that, you know, he's he's a terrible perfectionist and terribly, ultimately indecisive yeah. about his choices. And he got so lost in yeah. the choices that these... I mean, I think at one point they even get up to 56 tracks, <laughs> yes. filling every single one yeah, of them. That's right, they, they synced up a 24-track with a 32-track digital machine. I mean, it's just madness. And you feel like he gets kind of almost creatively yeah. paralysed and almost misses the sort of somewhat yeah. crude it, uh, well, basic I, I, sort of recording sessions on, on in early Roxy well, days. Well, I, I think that's right. He's also kind of, he's a bit humorless. I mean, he laughs into you, but sort of mirthlessly, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's odd, because I mean, Roxy was the sort of house band from my school when I was, when I was at Holland Park, Holland Park Comprehensive. Um, Andy McKay taught woodwinds. Um, my art teacher, John Ragg, was their roadie. He's credited inside the first album. He took me to roadie for the Slough Community Centre and when David O. Lester's still, still guitar player, Eno came to demonstrate the VCS3 and was sort of chased out of the school by skinheads shouting, you poof, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, so, so we had enormous, collectively, my year, the year below me, that year above me, had enormous affection. We were rooting for Roxy Music. And when Virginia Plain was a sort of a hit, it wasn't a massive hit, but it was a hit, we were so pleased. It was like, you know, our pulse had sort of just... Had, won the FA Cup. You Absolutely. Know. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I ever heard Virginia Plain. I mean, it was, along with a lot of other classic glam era singles, it was just like, what is yeah, this? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was like music from another planet. Yeah. And 
you know, fairly quickly became clear that Roxy were not just another glam group. Um, Absolutely. You know, they, they had real art, art rock credit. They had real art rock credentials. Absolutely. I mean, art school backgrounds. Yeah. Brian Ferry had studied art in Newcastle, where he came from, and Brian Eno was at Ipswich College of Art. Yes. And so there was, there was a kind of, there was uh, a kind of pop art heft to to Roxy's kind of schema. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose that my lot at school were always aware of that, because we were sort of hearing about it before they even made records. I mean, they, they, were, they were a presence there. The, the, one, if, one of, if, if your teacher, if your art teacher's there, Rodi, if your, in my case, oboe teacher for one lesson only was their sax player, it's, it, you know, they aren't just a bunch of glam kids. The, 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 there's a sort of adult ballast to them in that, that sort of basis. Yes. Um, I mean, I thought they were tremendous. I mean, I, the early, I stopped listening to them at some stage in the late 70s. Um, For Your Pleasure is absolutely one of my favourite albums. I think it's an astonishing record. You like, you're very big keen on Stranded, aren't you? I think For Your Pleasure is the best. Yeah. It's the most startling of the records in so many ways. I mean, not least the cover with Amanda Lear strutting across as this Black Panther. I mean, it's really remarkable. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's so bold, that record, and and so sort of extraordinary moods on yeah. it, I think. Yeah. Um, Eno, to, you know, being very magnanimous, said afterwards that he thought Stranded um, was was the best Roxy album. Well, you know, after he he he'd, he'd left yes. at that point, yes. Eddie Jobson had come in. Yeah. I do think I think Stranded is very strong. The songs are very very strong. I think they start to become less less interesting after that yeah. point. I think Country Life has some great moments. By Siren with Jerry Hall, then <laughs> Brian's girlfriend on the cover. I think Siren is 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 sort of weak. I mean, and then they sort of evolve into something very different, don't they? I mean, and, and, and by the eighties, yeah. they're 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 sort of creating this kind of um, almost kind of yuppie esque eighties oh, pop. They got smoother and smoother yeah. and smoother, uh, which was very successful for them. I mean, they sold a lot of records. But anyway, anyway, yeah. I, think, I think I think we've probably done frying but frying Barnett or. What was what did the enemy call him? By- Byron Ferrari. Byron Ferrari. I mean, apparently he was very sensitive about that. He really didn't like the fact that enemy renamed him, you know, yeah. um, Briny Ferret. And, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think his solo career is worth just talking br- briefly about in that it has been a strange and baffling thing. And he really reinvented himself as something very different from this guy who'd come down from Newcastle. And he does in the audio with Adam mm. Sweeting. He's he prickly, he, doesn't he? He's a little prickly about the whole country gent thing. Because, of course, he married Posh. And in he fact, had four sons who went to Eton. Now, I mean, this wasn't really on the Roxy cards well, in, in 1972. Well, well quite. And his, one of his sons is a well-known Hunt supporter. Um, well, there's a brief tip we could probably play you now where he actually talks about... His uh, country gentleman aspect. The only bad things I ever read about me is about people who've never met me, mm. which is, which is, uh, thank God. But um, it's also that can be very frustrating. It's a, a sort of myth builds up uh, about somebody because um, they just quote. They they don't meet you. They just quote from other old articles, mm. which were written by probably people who hadn't met you either. So this sort of person, is, you know, I mean, I do spend weekends in the country, but I mean, I like country air. I mean, because mm. I work in polluted old London five days a week, and, uh, but that doesn't make me a country gent. I mean, please. 
So that's Brian Ferry disavowing the charge that he's become a country gent in Sussex. Um, <laughs> we'll now move on to what's free on RBP on the homepage this week, starting with the main feature, which um, centres around Jeff Tweedy, who's just published um, his autobiography. I don't know whether he would call it that, but Faber have published uh, his book. And... Uh, so Jeff, along with Jay Farrar, was part of a very seminal band called Uncle Tupelo, who probably more than any other put kind of alternative country on the map. Uh, he then formed Wilco, uh, who you know, became a big cult band in the last 20 plus years. So we're looking in, in the three pieces, we're essentially addressing that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. In the in the I'd say kind of mid nineties, although Uncle Tupelo themselves predate that, mm-hmm. uh, their No Depression album was probably the first of those records, uh, and also spawned the magazine No Depression, sure. which was the sort of house rag for all these bands. Uh-huh. What do you, I mean? So well, you know, we sometimes talk, don't yes. we, Mark, about about Americana and alternative country, and I think you know we have some sort of nice things to say about it and some perhaps uh, slightly sceptical yeah, things to say I, about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a curious one. I'm, probably my first experience with Americana was Gillian Welch, her very first album. I got lucky enough to see her play live in Soho, launching her first album when it came out. And I was hugely impressed by, and remain hugely impressed by Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, her musical partner. But after that, it just as a sort of form, sort of felt a bit reductive to me. I mean, first of all, I like country music full stop. I mean, the things that both Barney and I have a background in liking what Americana comes out of, specifically the band, uh, who Barney's written a book about. And, yeah. and Grand Parsons, and Grand Parsons, of course, and, and people like that. And people like that. And it, it, to me, a lot of it feels like kind of fairly feeble reiteration of those things without any improvement. Um, I'm, I've become in my old age a sort of a, a bit of a, an anti-reactionary. That I, I, I don't particularly like revivalism as... Uh, as a musical mode, I think people should try and seek new ways of doing things. And uh, I, I just found the whole sort of country shtick um, a fairly pointless revival. And also all the sort of slightly self-conscious lo-fi analog recording stuff and all that. You know, I just shrugged my shoulders a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's it was an interesting or significant you could say reaction mm-hmm. to uh, things like grunge for example there was this sort of sense of you know we're going to go back into the past because there's some interesting things to explore there but also as with all nostalgia yeah. it's a sort of retreat from the present yes. and the present is scary so I remember someone once saying you know, every Americana band essentially just wants to be the band or the Hawks <laughs> at, at Big Pink in 1967 yes. you know that's the fantasy yes. and that accounts for everyone it counts for Mumford and Sons yes. for God's sake so, uh, but but what what they forget is that whilst the band's second album in particular sounds like it could have been recorded anywhere between 1870 and 1970, we'd also heard nothing like it before. Mm. Yes, it refers to existing previous uh, musical things, but I mean, for example, the use of the clavinet on it was what got Stevie Wonder playing a clavinet and invented the use of clavinet and funk. It was an, an, an album which pointed to a really interesting future. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, yes, of course, any musician can and will examine aspects of the past mm. and then take from it. But to lock yourself into that past mm. is, is, 
I think, a kind of waste of time. I think that's right. And I agree with you about Gillian Welch. I never listen to Gillian and think that she's sort of channeling no. some sort of ghostly troubadour from the past. You feel that these songs are emotionally real in the present. Um, while kind of clothed in the accoutrements of, of, yeah. of, of, of the past, the sound of their guitars and stuff. I mean, I do think some people have done interesting things, put interesting twists on, you know, what Dylan did with, yeah. with the band at Big Pink, with the, the whole Harry Smith anthology, that, that, uh, that Grill Marcus idea yes. of the old weird America. Um, Beck, for example, I, mean, I think had, had some interesting things. And I also think it's kind of interesting in a sort of socio-cultural sense that you know this is this is a country music this is a music you know that refers to in a sense the music of the rural south specifically although uncle tupelo came from the midwest <laughs> and so you have that i mean at this time politically when you've got the, these real schisms opening up between you know rural states and metropolitan elites yes. I, I i myself have somewhat ambivalent feelings about what that music represents i love i mean i'm sort of i, I love the countryside I've, i kind of half grew up in the country and i respond to rural music mm-hmm. but politically of course i have some problems with with what country music sometimes stands for. well increasingly that seems to stand, so stand for. it's all it's yeah. all it's all good stuff jeff tweedy wilco uncle tupelo and the other free uh pieces that we have on rocks back pages this week are by uh, a great new york writer called susan shapiro or more accurately susan shapiro i don't know whether she uh changed the spelling of her first name because she liked the idea of uh, the word sin being <laughs> part of it but jesus Died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Susan is someone who came on board recently, and we've got three pieces. They're all very New York centric. Uh, one involves her going to Electric Lady Studios to sit down and talk with Patsy Smith, who's in the midst of making horses. Um, wow. She meets the Ramones at CBGB's, and she sees Lou Reed performing songs from from the new Street Hassle album at the bottom line. It's, so it's it's it's, 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 a, it's so New York. It's, it's, it's just. Beyond New York. Susan is someone whose writing I hadn't come across before, kind of fairly obvious reasons, because she mostly wrote, she wrote a lot for the Village Voice, which was not a paper I ever had access to at the time. I was delighted by her stuff. It's very funny, it's very sparky. A couple of weeks back, we talked about her review of a live review of Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers, where she's absolutely, she just tears him to pieces. Um, it's great stuff. Yeah. She's really sparky, right? She's very sparky. I mean, you know, the Village Voice it really brought in a kind of mode of writing yeah. that was kind of flip and irreverent, but knowing and sassy. Well, it's, it's, and it's, she it's, falls into that bag it's very, hard, very it, well. It mixed two things together. It also had a, it had a ponderous and kind of heavy, pseudo-heavyweight side to it. But this aspect, I, I, I really do like... Um, also, the voice wrote about black music uh, more extensively than I'd say most American rock rags did. Um, you know, and of course, it's it's gone now. It, first of all, it stopped printing yeah. a few months back, and now it's actually gone shut down. It's good. a heartbreak, really. It's, it's a very very sad. Why don't we then move on to what's new in the RBP library for subscribers this week? Absolutely. First of all, and again, it's it's it's, it's dear old Dawn James under her Jean Marie. A pseudonym. Interviewed Marion Faithful, who's just married or just about to be married to John Dunbar. He's 65. 
And Marion says, thank goodness, love lasts long after the flowers are dead and the dress and the veil crushed and spoiled. She's eulogising this this marriage, which of course lasted about ten minutes. <laughs> Enter Mick Jagger, stage left. You know, um, it's it's a great it's a great piece. Second piece is a brand new writer to us, uh, Jim Payne. Barney, tell us a bit about Jim, Jim Payne. Jim Payne is um, someone I met in uh, Woodstock, New York, um, about twenty years ago. A friend of an English friend of mine, and. Um, it then transpired that uh, he had written for Crawdaddy magazine in the 60s, and he then wrote a great book about drummers. I mean, he's a drummer, and he's the expert on the great funky drummers yes. of, of soul and R&B, and wrote a great book called Give the Drummers Some. So so, so that's Jim. I think he teaches at Berkeley College right, of Music. Right, um, well, the, So the, what is this piece? Yeah, this piece is fantastic. I mean, absolute gold dust for us. It's a review of Aretha Franklin's first Atlantic album, I Never Loved a Man. I mean, it's significant First of all, it's a 1,700-word review. To get a review that big on a solo album from 19, in, in 1967, August 1967, is just unheard of. Mm. You know, and in a sense, that's the point of Crawdaddy as a magazine, as the inventor of the, the new music journalism, is that they were actually looking at things in that sort of depth, where before you get capsules, very short reviews. It's also a fantastic review. He absolutely gets it. He's aware of what she'd been doing at Columbia, how she'd been turned into a sort of supper club singer, strings and all that sort of stuff, jazz tunes. And his opening paragraph is great. Aretha Franklin's come back home, back home to Boogaloo, Alabama, and Pigeon Pea, Tennessee, back home to Hogmore, Mississippi, and Chitlin, South Carolina, back to where they do that flatfoot soul singing, not a lot of dancing and falling down and crying and playing dead, just straight-ahead stuff, standing there on your own two feet and making it. And the review carries on in that mode. It, 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 it's, it's just a really fabulous piece of writing. It's a really... Great piece of writing about a really great record. I think Barney and I both agree. Um, ironically, of course, I think you said she... Uh, ironically, of course, I think you told me that he thinks it's K- King Curses is back. Yeah, the, the, the one mistake he makes is that, well, because I don't think the musicians are credited on the back cover of the record, they, because King Curses is on it, he figured it was King Curses' And of course band. it's Marshall Shoals. Yeah. Um, uh, even though they took the Marshall Shoals with them back to New York. up to New York to back record. To New York. But Roger Hawkins, yeah. who I think was one of the drummers that he interviewed in his book, yeah. is of course the drummer yeah. on it. And he talks about the drummer and gets it wrong. It's the only thing wrong with yeah. this review. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it doesn't it, detract it doesn't, from what he's saying. It doesn't detract from it's not at all, and, and it, it is the real, in many ways, the birth of soul. Yeah, no, we it's, know it's, it, isn't it? It's, and we lost her this this year. But I mean, just that track, the title track alone, "I Never Loved a Man oh, the Way I Love You," is it, it probably um, is the greatest thing she ever did. If, if any of you get the opportunity to read Peter Guralnik's uh, "Sweet Soul Music," there's a wonderful chapter on Aretha and Muscle Shoals, and. Um, uh, uh, who's the piano player? Um, yeah, Spooner Oldham. Spooner, yeah, Spooner Oldham says that he heard Aretha go up to the piano and play one chord, and he goes up to Jerry Wexler and says, "I'm not playing piano on this session," you know. And but it, he does, of course, play electric play, piano. He, he, he does, and that's one of the great things about yeah. that is the interplay yeah. between the two. Absolutely, but it, it's it's a fabulous chapter and a really fabulous book. So it if is. you get a, if you get a chance, mm-hmm. read that. Okay, well, last week, of course, we had our guest was John Mendelssohn, uh, most entertaining and wonderful writer, and so on. Well, this is Tim in classic action for the LA Times reviewing Grand Funk Railroad at the Inglewood Forum in 1970. 
And he just tears the thing to pieces in classic Mendelssohn style. One paragraph is, in team parlance, leader of Mark Fonner really gets it on, which translated means he stampedes across the stage a lot, flagellates himself with his hair a lot, screams in a fake southern accent a lot, and attempts to disguise the fact that he's a dreadful player by contorting grotesquely and turning the volume of his guitar up beyond the pain threshold during excruciating solos. Uh, and it carries on pretty much in that vein. The Grand Funk were the band that all rock critics yeah. love I to actually, hate. I they? saw them. I saw them supported by Humble Pie. Lucky man. Free concert in the park. Humble Pie were really rather brilliant that day. It was the Peter Frampton era, Humble Pie. Uh, and we all hated, even before we had heard a note they played, because the, the, the journalists we liked hated them. The, the, yeah. uh, interestingly, doing my job here is I've discovered that there were a lot of American journalists who really liked them. Lenny Kay was very fond of Grand Funk Railroad. It's, it's absolutely true. You know? Bizarre, isn't it? Um, but anyway, so moving so swiftly on. 73, Rolling Stone. David Renson interviews Joe Zavanel from Weather Report. It's a pretty early Weather Report article. And um, Joe Zavanel's a prickly old bugger. You know, he's sort of... Yeah, he's, he's, every interview I've read with him, he's a highly opinionated, um, you know, tough-minded man. Doesn't sound like a great deal of fun. Uh, but, you know, I have a huge amount of time for him as a musician. And he's asked about Mars Davis, and he says, no, I don't think we've left Mars behind. We're just somewhere else, man. Another entity that grew out of him. Mm. Which I think it's a really kind of good take on... Well, we broadly like Weather Report, don't we, in the Rockstar Pages? I, 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 great those, moments. Of all those fusion of yeah. commas bands, they're the only ones I can really tolerate. Well, Wayne um, Shorter's extraordinary, and of course, Lacey Jacob. Story. I mean, you know, they were phenomenal musicians. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's a bit wanky, but sometimes it's extraordinarily beautiful, I think. Absolutely. Uh, moving on, uh, Robert Duncan in Cream in November 77, uh, basically writing an overview of uh, New York punk. Oh, so we're going back into Susie. So we are world. going back into, into Susie mode. And there's a couple of things I want to read from this. It starts with, you know, let's get this straight. I refuse to call this crap New Wave. New Wave cinema is pretentious enough, so we'll not suffer New Wave music. First of all, for the most part, it's not new and it's not any sort of wave. More akin to a light chop, if you ask me. Secondly, it's punk rock. No, make that punk rock, small p, small r, as in just another bunch of snotty punks trying to play rock and roll. Um, punk rock is what it started as, and punk rock is what it'll finish as, soon, I hope. And it's a it, kind of Motor City disdain yeah, yeah, for well, Gotham, isn't it? Well, you know, though, though he was a New York-based writer at that time. I was, yeah. Yeah, okay. he, he was. Um, but so, originally from, I think, Michigan. Yeah, quite possibly. Anyway, he goes on to write about television. An ill-natured hippie band, plain and simple, Musically, the, musically, they belong to the Grateful Dead. Sociologically, they belong, belong to the post-war World War II, that is, baby boom generation, which is to say, rich, egocentric, and possessed of all the manners of an oyster. <laughs> and, and he basically talks about most of the bands like that. I, I think he's, he's, he's pretty keen on talking heads, but that's... About, so he basically got it all wrong. Well, yeah, but I, you know, I find it quite a refreshing, yeah, refreshing. antidote to sort of, um, kind of, course, of worshipping that sort of era. And actually, you know, you and I, I think, have talked about television in, yes. in somewhat Grateful Deadish well, terms. I, I, the first thing that struck me was that they sounded like a sort of a, a dark version of the dead. I mean, when I saw them live, supported by Blondie, marvellously. Blondie were fabulous. <laughs> television were very boring. And it was just endless spiralling guitar sets. Now, I'm a bit of a deadhead. I should have liked that. 
didn't really. But <laughs> but Marky Moon, we have to say, stands it's up great. as one of the greatest yeah. records ever made. Especially and the guitar you, playing on it is phenomenal. Especially if you add their first single onto it, which L- Little Johnny Jewel. Yes, yeah. which, which is a terrific record. Um, I, I lived and breathed that record. You know, after Nick Kent's review and yeah. NME, I you know, I like like many a pallid young man, <laughs> I rushed out to buy it and and buy where you're just, a pallid you know, young man. Yeah, it was one of the records of that yeah. period. I just did not stop playing. Yeah. I could I could listen to it almost any time today and 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 enjoy it again. But anyway, so that, that's that's Duncan's yeah. quite entertaining takedown of not just television but a number of those mm-hmm. bands. Swiftly on Baltimore Sun, nineteen eighty one, Jeffrey Himes talking about in the light of the two Bob Dylan uh, Christian albums, Slow Train Coming and what's the other one? Save, save. That's it. Uh, and he's just examining the way religion is treated within rock and generally saying it's fine, you know, if it's done well. And he talks about T-Bone Burnett, who he believes actually converted Dylan on the Rolling Thunder tour um, as being someone who could include his Christian values in his music without kind of being um, heavy-handed. But he's, Dylan is just the exception for him. Just, Seldom has the self-righteous attitude sounded so grating as in Slow Train Coming which opens with Gotta Serve Somebody. In a harping, taunting voice, Mr. Dylan pontificates, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's a pretty narrow range of choices. Um, <laughs> which I think is splendid. It's, it's, it's a very interesting piece. And a kind of similar piece. Um, from a couple of years, three years later, four years later, Ben Fong Torres, the San Francisco Chronicle, on Boy Toy Rock, Sex Sirens of the Decade, in which he examines what was really quite a new phenomenon at that point, where certain women singers were using their sexuality in an overt sort of way which now we regard as common, you know, now wouldn't raise an eyebrow. But back in 85, have Madonna, have Apollonia... Princes girls. Various princes girls, sort of really sort of flaunting their sexuality on stage. And he he just goes into it in some detail. He doesn't really reach any conclusions because he gets people like... Grace Slick took her daughter to see Madonna... No, to see uh, uh, Sheila E. And just thought it was amusing sort of thing. But but it's an examination of of this rise of the women using their sexuality in a really overt sort of boy toy rock. I see is the the headline. It is, Um, and and that idea of the boy. I think didn't Madonna? Yes, she in fact she came up with that. She even had it on. She says in the PC, on her belt is boy toy. Yeah, I mean, I I do think you know now in hindsight this stuff is problematic in terms of sort of gender politics, sexual harassment, etc. So So it's interesting to revisit. Yeah, well, it's interesting that he visited it at the time in, in some detail. Yeah, uh, talking about Madonna, highly entertaining Adam Sweeting live, live review from Wembley in 1990, and he's he's really wonderfully rude about it because generally Madonna's shows get very very good reviews. It's a sort of you know, he says it fails and not even spectacularly. Okay, so Madonna had a difficult Catholic upbringing and isn't sure where lust ends and faith begins. Why talk about it in a football stadium? Um, what was once a pop star with a knack for shrewd, scintillating hits has become a corporation with global subsidiaries, the Nissan of showbiz. The greatest mystery of all is how she came to rega- be regarded as a sex object. <laughs> talking about what we've been talking mm. about. In Jean-Paul's Gautier's costumes, which often resemble restraining harnesses for persistent offenders, Madonna is as sexually alluring as a rotary lawnmower. <laughs> 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 so, Chacun son Dieu. <laughs> 
But uh, no, it's it, 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 it's it's good stuff. It's 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 it's, it's good writing. Um, well, lovely, Mark. Thank you so much for that. And, and just sort of bringing it up to date, a couple of pieces I've noted from more recent years. There's a, a lovely piece that uh, Jim Irvin wrote in The Word magazine, which essentially just transcribes interviews that he's done with uh, Peter Hamill and Jello Biafra. It's a sort of prog versus punk piece. <laughs> with, with Hamill, the former leader, of course, of Van der Graaff Generator, making the case... Prague yeah. very eloquently, yeah. and uh, Angelo Biafra explaining why punk came along to you know, murder kick, prog. Kick <laughs> prog into the long grass. Uh, uh. But I mean, Hamill's more thoughtful in many ways, and you know he's the first to admit that the last thing Van der Graaf wanted to do was was to was to sort of give birth to kind of Rick Wakeman and the Seven <laughs> Wives of or whoever the hell it was. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so and and he says rather ruefully at one point, it turned out that that's one, what the fans wanted. Yeah, they they wanted ridiculous, you know, Rococo showing off and keyboard twiddling and arpeggios. You know, they didn't want the ra- the rather sort of dark. <laughs> forces of what Van de Graaff of course about. the great irony is that in his famous uh, Capital Radio appearance d- during the Sex Pistols period one of the records that Johnny Rotten played mm. was a Van de Graaff generator oh actually it was, it, was, it was Nadia's big chance the, the, <laughs> the, the, the Hamill solo album. oh I right mean, oh, yeah, I think okay. Hamill I mean I think this, that, that's what makes this piece somewhat ironic that Hamill I think was quite a big influence yeah. on a generation of shall we say sort of proto-punks yep. Um, and certainly the, 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 the more eclectic listening of somebody like John Lydon, you know. Um, I, I, you know I, it's, neither are musical forms I really touch myself these days, or even really then. I mean, you know, punk sort of happened to me with my art school, but, but, but I like what punk stood for. But I can't say I like the noise they made very much, you know. And one of the things that really drove me into the arms of black music in a big way was the fact you either had a choice of prog on one side, punk on the other. Yeah. You know, yeah. what, what were you left with? Well, yeah. little feet, and that was about. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, so we can make a lateral move from that piece, uh, the prog versus punk piece, to Richard Williams's obituary for or of Kim Fowley, your um, old pal, late, your pal Kim Fowley, <laughs> the late, the late uh, and infamous Kim Fowley, who died in 2015. Um, Kim, well, you couldn't say he was one of the architects of punk, but he did play his modest part in the LA punk scene. Oh, of course, yeah. put the Runaways on the map. Now the Runaways weren't precisely a punk band, but they had punky elements. And a sort of pro- a proto punk yeah, band, certainly. Yeah. Cherry, cherry bomb. You know, hat, hat was like oh, kind great. Of, yeah, it was it, <laughs> great it, it record. Was, it was it was sort of punkish, yeah. and. Um, you know, and he did sign punk bands, and he put on uh, punk bills at the Whiskey A Go Go. Yeah. So, so Kim was this slightly macabre figure, six foot five, floating around, exploiting young people, and you know, quite possibly being sexually very inappropriate the, with, well, with young, youngish girls on the scene. Well, uh, absolutely. Now, this leads on to sort of another sort of subsidiary relating to what we do, Barney. So, we have one of your inter- many interviews with Kim. We've got a few hours. You interviewed him with the idea to do a book with him? Well, I mean, I interviewed him for uh, my L.A. book, Waiting for the Sun, in the early yeah. 90s. And, you know, you literally couldn't shut Kim up. I mean, he just go on and on all night. And he could talk about anything and everything. Roll forward of, of maybe about eight years, and Kim wanted to do 
a book, which we were, I think we we're going to call it Vampire from Outer Space or something <laughs> like that. And so I spent many, many hours on the phone with him. Yeah. I was living on the East Coast and he was on the West Coast, of course. And, and I mean, he just did deliver brilliant copy. Uh, I don't think he could ever have written well, but you only had to turn a tape on and you would end up with reams and reams yeah. of absolutely priceless, brilliant sometimes quite just a scandal I mean he was an extraordinary person yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever whatever he did or yeah. didn't do but so so, was, so we now have sort of this dilemma because we've got a, quite a few hours more of your tapes not necessarily the phone ones face to face ones which I'd love to put up in the audio section equally we have a very very long interview with Jimmy Savile by um, Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton and one feels queasy I mean in a way putting up that Jimmy Savile interview is something we should do because uh, he was a pioneering DJ. Some would say he was the first proper DJ in this country. Um, but in the light of subsequent events and knowledge, you know, do we? Ethically, it's a very difficult choice, difficult isn't it? One. I mean, I, w- I would uh, hesitate. In fact, I would hate to put Kim in the same in the, in, in the same category I, 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 as Jimmy South. I would agree, but you know there, are, there is a similar queasiness, especially since the revelations about yeah, essentially being accused of raping one of the sure. ways. You know, sure, uh, it, it, it's 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 a tricky one. I mean, I, I think that we should put the um, Jimmy Savile interview on the site at some stage, but because it, it is you know there well, is an important musical bit of history there, and that is our primary job. Yeah. Well, but but yeah. I don't know. That's for us to it, discuss. It's up for debate. And <laughs> yeah. It's up for debate. So Kim Fowley and much more on Rocks Back Pages yeah. this week. Some great free stuff. Lots of new fascinating things, including the Brian Ferry audio for subscribers. Which, so uh, I'd like to say we are going to play out with um, Brian Ferry talking about his passion for vinyl, which in this this day and age is a very absent theme. So take it away, Brian. There's a new sensation. I still really like vinyl. Yeah. Don't you? Mm, You know what I do? I like the tactile thing of picking up... Well, even if you don't pick it up, at least you see it going round. You see this needle going into it, and you think, oh, right, it's on. It's going. (laughs) Whereas once you put the CD... Although they're neat and more durable and the the scratching thing... Yeah, you stick it in and then go... Then it's gone, you know, and you don't see it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's... the thing, it's like, it's yeah, that's right. You go, oh God, you know, <laughs> you lose touch, physical touch with it, contact with it. And I like the thing of like pressing the thing or lifting it on. Even that was really the most satisfying, lifting the needle into the groove. That was Brian Ferry talking to interviewer Adam Sweeting about the merits of vinyl records, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The presenters were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. For show notes and a list of articles discussed, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. As ever, you can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. What's your name? Virginia Plain.